The 1-1 pitch. Swing and a line drive through the left side, a base hit. Duplantis sprints home to score, and the Cyclones have a 4-3 lead in the final game of the season. Brooklyn by one, the pitch. Struck him out swinging. Brooklyn, you have your title. The Brooklyn Cyclones are outright champions for the first time in history. 2019 New York Penn League champions. Brooklyn four, Lowell three. Coney Island going crazy. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. What it is, what it is, everyone. How are you? My name's Tim Hanlon. It's Good Seats Still Available. How are you? It's uh, our curious little journey that we try to do for you each and every week. Uh, Our little uh, exploration into what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming by. As Always. And uh, we cannot get baseball off the brain, even though it's still not quite uh, spring training, but we're getting there inch by inch, week by week. Uh, A little bit of thaw here and there in the uh, Midwest and uh, hopefully uh, pitchers and catchers reporting down south into uh, Florida and to Arizona relatively soon. But uh, let's go back into uh, some more realms of the minor leagues. Our guest this week, Michael Sokolow, will tell us Uh, A fascinating, very interesting, intriguing story about a league that exists no more. Not uh, the only league that doesn't exist anymore in minor league baseball. The New York Penn League. Long history. Actually, the longest running until abruptly uh, contracted uh, in 2021 by Major League Baseball. The New York Penn League uh, had been uh, many decades uh, in and around uh, the New York State uh, area, uh, also including Vermont and teams in uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut, Maryland and Pennsylvania, and 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 of course, uh, mostly in the uh, state of New York, including uh, the topic, uh, not only the New York Penn League this week, but two uh, strange additions uh, in the 2000s uh, in New York City proper, the Staten Island Yankees and the Brooklyn Cyclones. And we're going to get into the story of those two teams, uh, one of which is still around, but not in the New York Penn League, because that's not around anymore. And one that uh, went uh, belly up and has been replaced uh, by another team uh, in another league. Uh, All part of the uh, convoluted, uh, intriguing, and in some cases, depending on who you talk to, sinister story of the former... New York Penn League, uh, single A class, uh, and these two teams in New York City proper, the Staten Island Yankees and the Brooklyn Cyclones, um, now no longer with us in those forms. Uh, and uh, so this is a story not only of um, the New York Penn League and its uh, quaintness and its long history, uh, the uh, arrival of these two New York City teams uh, at the behest of a one at the time, still sane, Rudy Giuliani, mayor of New York, uh, looking to bring minor league baseball into the five boroughs for what reasons we'll explore. And and uh, I, I'll give you a hint. We're not necessarily sure what the answers were. Uh, and interestingly, the 
the overlords and or owners of these two minor league teams, the New York Yankees, or as uh, John Sterling would say, the Yankees, uh, and the New York Mets, who are the owners and the um, overseers of the Brooklyn Cyclones. Um, so uh, interesting rivalry sort of born there, but uh, having two single A minor league teams in the five boroughs in the shadows of these two major league teams, uh, interesting dynamics to say the least. And the uh, the clip you heard there at our outset of this episode was the very last game, the very last pitch, and the very last champions of the New York Penn League, those Brooklyn Cyclones. Uh, the first uh, outright championship that they won in their about 20-year history or so. And I think somewhat uh, uh, unwittingly for most people in the stands and, and listening and watching the game uh, at uh, then MCU uh, uh, Field or Stadium uh, on September 10th, 2019, that was the last ever game of the New York Penn League because in 2020, of course, uh, the pandemic uh, sort of uh, took grip of uh, of everything and uh, shut down all kinds of sports, including minor league baseball and the New York Penn League. And in 2021, uh, the uh, contraction, the great contraction of major league baseball, of minor league baseball. And uh, sadly, the New York Penn League was part of the uh, of the uh, the undertow uh, and gone were all of those teams. The Staten Island Yankees uh, were uh, essentially abandoned by the New York Yankees uh, and have been replaced, uh, luckily, in uh, 2021, last year, uh, with the Staten Island Ferry Hawks, uh, who now uh, apply their trade in uh, one of the uh, great independent leagues out there, the Atlantic League uh, of Professional Baseball, uh, and a uh, star-studded ownership uh, group there that uh, that owns that team, uh, comprised of uh, an interesting assemblage uh, of folks who um, uh, all have Staten Island uh, roots. There, uh, who's that include in there? Let me just get the the, the names uh, correct here. Uh, John uh, Cast, uh, I can never pronounce his name. Castamatides or Mastati, uh, whatever. He was the CEO of. Uh, um, He's the CEO of Gristidi's Foods, and he owns uh, uh, the uh, WABC Radio, a station in also on Long Island. Castamides, I think that's it. Uh, Danny Garcia, who is uh, part owner, the former husband of uh, uh, Dwayne Johnson and the, and the co-owner and uh, uh, overseer of the uh, new XFL starting soon, uh, but also uh, comedians Colin Jost, Pete Davidson, and Michael Che of Saturday Night Live fame are also part of this uh, ownership group, the Staten Island Ferryhawks, playing independent league baseball on the northern uh, northeastern tip of Staten Island. Brooklyn Cyclones, those uh, uh, last champion of the New York Penn League Brooklyn Cyclones, um, still owned uh, by um, uh, the New York Mets, Steve Cohen, uh, owning that. And they are now part of Major League Baseball's official minor league baseball system. Uh, they play in a league known as the South Atlantic League, and um, it's um, you have to look at the uh, uh, at the geography of this of this league because um, it, it's it's all over the place. There are teams that are centered in in and around North Carolina and South Carolina. There are teams centered in and around uh, the New York, uh, New Jersey area, and and Pennsylvania. And it's just it's uh, let's put it this way: it's not as quaint and compact as uh, where these two teams 
emanated from. And that is the uh, topic du jour uh, with our guest this week, Mike Sokolo. We're going to be talking about the New York Penn League and these two curious minor league single A uh, uh, baseball teams in the five boroughs, the Brooklyn Cyclones and the former Staten Island Yankees. Uh, the, the, the interesting, crazy, somewhat sordid and curious story uh, of all of those things coming right up in a moment's time. The book, we must, uh, we must promote the book, of course. Mike Sokolow has, uh, uh, it's coming out, uh, the book is coming out on April 1st. Uh, it is available for pre-order now, wherever you find good books. Uh, it is called Bush League Big City, the Brooklyn Cyclones, Staten Island Yankees, and the New York Penn League. It is published by SUNY Press, Excelsior Editions. Uh, and uh, you can find a, a pre-order link on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode with uh, with Michael, uh, number 292, I believe it is. And you will find a convenient link to Amazon to pre-order either the paperback edition or the Kindle edition. Now, you may also want to um, check over at the uh, SUNY Press website. I think that's SUNY, S-U-N-Y, press.edu. There is a chance that you can not only order it there, uh, but uh, and it still also says it will be available on on April 1st. Uh, But uh, there is a, a rumor that we hear that perhaps you might get the book a little bit sooner than that. Uh, so there's another uh, option for you to try. Regardless, uh, the official drop date is uh, is April 1st. Whenever you're listening to this episode, if it's after that date, it's available now. Run, don't walk to get it. And you know the links to get it. And uh, if it's before April 1st, why wait? Why not uh, hop on over to Amazon or, or SUNY Press and, and get yourself uh, locked and loaded so that just in case it's actually launched and delivered before? April 1st, you'll get it. You'll be the first one on your block to get this great book as you will hear uh, and you will want to get uh, post this conversation. Here it is. Please, as always, enjoy. Uh, I guess the, the, uh, the best place to start in a conversation around this story, and I think, frankly, we know how it's all going to end up, what we're going to talk about at the end, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, right. With Major League Baseball and all that stuff. But um, g- give our audience a sense of uh, your background, just in general, uh, career and interests and passions, that kind of stuff. And what led you to um, this story that we're about to kind of unfold here? Uh, my pleasure. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and left only to go to gr- to grad school for about three years in the early 1990s. But aside from that, I've been a Brooklynite my whole life. And my first baseball game, when I was probably about nine or 10 years old, I'm 55. So in the mid 1970s, we went to see the Mets during some of their doldrum years, 76, 77. And they were playing the Houston Astros, who at that time were wearing that incredibly colorful uniform with the stripes around the midsection. And I don't remember anything much about Shea Stadium other than that it was kind of this massive concrete monolith. And I don't remember being bowled over like some Billy Crystal story of Yankee Stadium with the beautiful green grass and the thought of Mickey Mantle out there, you know, transversing the outfield. 
Uh, it was a nondescript Mets team at a nondescript time, but every game I went to, we won. So I always enjoyed the Mets, and I always enjoyed baseball. And I, I remained a sports fan for years and a long-suffering Mets and Jets fan in New York. But in the meantime, my life took me to uh, college as an economics major. I was originally going to be, it was the 1980s, so I was going to be Alex P. Keaton when I got through, and I was going to be a stockbroker and make a ton of money. Uh, and then of all things, I, I was secretary of the corporate careers program. We had all kinds of plans for Wall Street work after school was out. I was at Brooklyn College, part of the Sydney University. And then in 1987, I saw the movie Wall Street with Charlie Sheen and with the Michael Douglas and the idea that greed was good. And what is funny is it wasn't the drama of the movie that got me. It was the scenes of trying to sell stocks to little old ladies uh, and make as much money as you can and have a high-flying lifestyle. And I said, I could never do that. That's not me. And I got into a program for interested college professors. They wanted to know if you wanted a career as a college professor Sunday after school. Uh, took a double major in something called American Studies, which was interdisciplinary and included history and literature, music, and loved it. And so I went to grad school for American and New England Studies and wrote my first book in 2003 about a sailor from Salem, Massachusetts in the 1850s who left a diary where he wrote to his wife about how much he missed her and all of his adventures trading 12 months a year as he sailed around the world. And I wrote about race and about uh, intersection of middle-class culture. And it was really interesting. And I'm finishing up the book. I finished that book in 2003. This one's being published in 2023. So I'm going to have a heck of a book in 2043. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but I'm sure it's going to be great. But as I was finishing the book, my wife was taking a class. She was doing a master's in urban planning. And her professor was a New York City planner from Staten Island who had helped plan a baseball stadium at a place called St. George uh, in northern Staten Island. And I was fascinated by the stuff she was bringing home about ULERP and FEIS and a wide variety of hearings that they were having about whether this stadium was a good idea or not. And then to my great horror, I realized that we had a sister stadium right down the block from the college where I teach, where the Brooklyn Cyclones played in Coney Island. Two stadiums at one time for minor league teams in the five boroughs of New York City seemed very strange to me, especially once I started to dig and found that the two stadiums had cost a combined $120 million dollars. And I said, wow, that was a lot of taxpayer money that nobody asked me if I wanted to spend. And so I started digging into the story of the stadiums, but discovered that I needed to know more about the teams that played in the stadiums. And then I wanted to know more about what the teams used to be before they came to New York City. And then I wanted to know about the league that they played in, which turned into a whole book full of information uh, that all started with one A- minus that my wife got in grad school and is still angry about. It was her only A minus, but I love that guy. I'll Professor Pablo. I'll be grateful to him forever. So in your Robert Caro like uh, snail's pace of uh, <laughs> publishing, um, 
the uh, although I, 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 arguably your your book is not nearly as long as a, as a traditional Robert Caro tone, and it's book. not going to be five volumes. No, or, yeah, never, never. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I joke. I mean, I but I just I the Robert Moses story, for example, the power broker is just it's actually uh, an underpinning, frankly, to some of this story. Um, I uh, read the whole thing. Yeah, it's including uh, three weeks when I I was sick with the fever. And so there's 300 pages in the middle that I couldn't swear to, but I was darn determined to finish the whole thing. What an incredible book. And it, it taught me a lot, I think, along the way. Right. And it's urban actually, planning. It, yeah, it's actually apropos in, in, yeah. in this regard, because um, we're talking about uh, two teams that are domiciled in the New York metropolitan area. For those who aren't familiar with the five boroughs uh, and the environs that uh, surround it uh, 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 in a metropolitan area of I don't know, uh, uniqueness for sure. Um, uh, and the borough of Brooklyn and the borough of Staten Island. Um, so you not only that, but yeah. uh, a, a city that already has seven professional sports teams. Well, OK, so, so there, did there's we really that. need minor yeah. league teams on top of those. We right. got the and, Mets and, and the two, Yankees and everybody else. And two, yeah, two major league baseball teams, a heritage of three uh, at one time back in the day. All right. So let's let, so your entree to this is really more the stadia and the geographies of this versus the, this minor league New York Penn League thing itself. Um, give me a sense of what uh, what is presented to you now as the story to pursue. What what do you think this story is, and 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 where does where do you begin in in the journey? Well, at this point, after completing the arc, it's really to me a lot more than the stadia and how they got built. It's a lot more about the business of baseball, about how the leagues began, the league began, the New York Penn League, originally the Pony League, uh, and how it ended up, and how it was always very much under the control and influence and authority of Major League Baseball. I think the minor leagues, the Bush leagues, seemed to operate independently for so long aside from being a feeder system to the majors, that people may not be aware of how much every step can be circumscribed, especially as time went by. Over the last 30 years, since the 1990s, uh, MLB has taken very strong steps to assert centralized control over everything. And the stadia are part of the development of professional baseball in America, into a huge, big business controlled by quite a lot of millionaires, if not billionaires, even at the minor league level in the lowest section of Class A short season baseball. By the 1980s and 90s, there were millionaire carpetbagger owners looking for new stadiums everywhere they went. So the Brooklyn and Staten Island stories are very much a part of the larger story of professional sports in America, of municipalities and how they interact with teams and leagues uh, of what teams and leagues want to get out of the areas where they are situated. It's not just fans in the seats. It's also new stadiums and luxury boxes and naming rights deals and tax abatements and play to purchase deals that they make with the cities. It's been fascinating to see all the different layers and how they come together. But also for me, a big part of it, as it was with my first book about the sailor and his diary, are the stories of individual people. In this case, a lot of front office personnel and owners 
who I got to know sometimes interviewing directly, but sometimes through everything I read about them. I didn't get to Jeff Wilpon, but I really would have loved to do so. Well, tell me, let, let's uh, let's kind of step back and maybe set up what this New York Penn League uh, was all about. We don't have to get sort of too, you know, too deep into sort of the historical roots. But I mean, you're mentoring it used to be known as the Pony League. I mean, if you look at it geographically, um, and by the way, as a reminder to our listeners who probably, you know, outside the Northeast, you know, don't already know, this is one of the leagues that got contracted by Major League Baseball. Uh, and is yeah. no longer with us. So it qualifies for our little silly series uh, of shows. But uh, if you look at the geography of it, you look at a map of it, uh, it literally is uh, in the north. It's literally northeast. A little bit of there's a one of the last teams was in the northern uh, northeastern corner of, of uh, Ohio. And there was also one just uh, just south of the Pennsylvania border in in uh, West Virginia. But I mean, literally, this is a part and parcel uh, 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 heritage of of the New York and New England region. Um, and I'm, uh, I, the, the curiosity will be, how does it infiltrate um, the big city of New York? Because most of these franchises were suburban and or exurban, if you will, uh, throughout most of its history, I think. Very much so. What's interesting to me that I discovered early on along the way is the New York Penn League was the longest continuously operating league in America, in the minor leagues. Um, it started in 1939 with the backing of the St. Louis Cardinals organization, which was very much under Branch Rickey, a very forward-thinking organization to try to have farm teams and to try to have a farm system that fed into the success of the major league club. And in 1939, uh, one guy named Oliver French, and I haven't been able to find a picture of him, he was a functionary in the Cardinals organization, drove around Western New York State and created what they called at that time the Pony League, the Pennsylvania, Ontario, New York League. And I have a little map in the book, all within driving distance of each other. Um, six teams, eventually eight teams that were all in westernmost New York State, Niagara Falls, Jamestown, Batavia, a team in Pennsylvania, Bradford, Pennsylvania, and a team in Hamilton, Ontario, which was their uh, real jewel because it was the Hamilton Redbirds. It was part of the Cardinals organization. Uh, and they were a Class D league, the bottom of the barrel. Class D at that time was the largest class in professional baseball. There were 22 leagues with 144 teams. More than all of the other class minor leagues combined were in Class D. But they were the bottom of a pyramid. They were very widely dispersed, a lot of small leagues that didn't interact with each other. And in the 40s and 50s, somehow they survived and started to thrive. But in the 1950s, there was a major contraction of the minors. A lot of minor leagues went out of business. A lot of these shoestring mom and pop operations uh, couldn't compete with the allure of outdoor sports, television, watching Major League Baseball in your own home. But in the 70s, the 60s and 70s, the Pony League transition, it became a short season summer only league, which was better for the weather up north anyway, to just play from June through September and not try to play games in April and May. Uh, 78 games total, 39 home games. And they started to get good attendance and they started to grow. And in the 80s, the time of Bull Durham, the great movie about minor league baseball, the Bible of minor league baseball, there was a boom 
in minor league interest and attendance as people got sick of the financial pages of the majors that culminated eventually in a strike in 1994. Minor league baseball seemed pure and local and part of the fabric of the community. But always these small teams were hovering on the edge of financial disaster trying to get by. Uh, and in the 80s and 90s, Major League Baseball began to kind of assert control. But the New York Penn League, as it was renamed in the 1960s, the New York-Pennsylvania League, was always Western New York until it wasn't. As the league grew and franchises became more valuable, they moved east of Syracuse and they had Utica and Little Falls and a lot of smaller communities. By 1989, there were 14 teams in what had used to be an eight-team league, and they were drawing more than 700,000 people in a season, which was more than they ever had the chance to do before. So the New York Penn League really became kind of a fixture, and it stayed in existence till Major League Baseball dissolved it during the pandemic uh, without very much uh, ado in 2020. Uh, their 80th anniversary came and went, and they never got to their 81st. All right. So lots to unpack there. So, um, yeah, we're talking about, you know, t towns like Niagara Falls and Jamestown and and, um, and even one that uh, lasted soldiered on until um, uh, until the uh, the very end. Um, now, I just lost it here. Well, the team uh, was Batavia, Batavia, New York. Right. And actually ironic because the, the league itself was, uh, I, I believe, came together in a, in a hotel there in, in, in Batavia. Um so That's where the league started back in 1938 at their first meeting. But by the end, they were kind of owned by the league because they couldn't find an owner and they couldn't move the franchise. And then the league was gone. And so was Batavia. So it began in Batavia and kind of ended in Batavia as well. So that translation from that original sort of class D uh, uh, demarcation to, I guess, what was sort of a short season class A uh, re short season, yeah, short, short season class A, I guess, is I guess was the that's exactly what they called it, yeah. Designation. Why do you, why do you think uh, a league as uh, uh, old, frankly, and and heritaged and um, genteel and 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 sort of part of the fabric of of the New York, New England region, um, why do you think it was one of the ones that got um, erased, if you will, when Major League Baseball? decided to contract and, and literally go deeper into its control of minor league baseball. The contraction story goes back to the early 1990s, which many people don't realize. There's a wonderful book um, called The Lords of the Realm. Oh, God. The author was John. I'm, I'm blanking on his name, um, but a wonderful, wonderful book. Sorry about this. No, I'll find it. Uh, checking it in the middle. Uh, and uh, it's it really focuses a lot on, of all people, the owners of the Chicago White Sox, Jerry Reinsdorf, also the owner of the Chicago Bulls of uh, Michael Jordan fame, uh, and his partner, Eddie Einhorn. And they were real cost cutters and penny pinchers. Uh, ironically, of course, Jerry was originally from Brooklyn, like everybody in the story seems to be. Um, but Einhorn and the uh, other partners, John Hellyar, that's his name, H-E-L-Y-A-R, wonderful book. Um, Eddie Einhorn uh, was the big guy arguing for cost effectiveness. And he said, the minor leagues are too big. We have 170 teams. They're financially ruinous, which, of course, anybody who knows about minor league operations, they cost almost nothing. One minor league owner said later, 
what we cost is what the New York Yankees spend on napkins for a season. Um, but Einhorn argued that it was costing them too much. They were they had too many players that they were developing for too few who made the majors. And there was a lot of back and forth between the miners and, and Einhorn and Reinsdorf about how many people really made it through. But he wanted to knock out from every team having five minor league teams to every major league team having only two. And instead of having rosters of 120, they've had, they'd have rosters of 60. So it's been 30 years of planning contraction. And it took quite a while for it to come around. But a lot of the big league owners really agreed. We pay too much money for the miners, which, in fact, they reduced their subsidy over the years quite a bit. So a, a, a so short you're, season. You're, you're, you're drawing a straight line then almost from sort of that 19, I don't know, that 1994-esque strike and 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 uh, perhaps that that uh, realm of ownership at that time, almost as the seeds of what's now playing out now in in this new crazy new constructed schedule and 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 uh, uh, new rules and stuff of Major League Baseball and the contraction of 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 the minors under their thumb. Very much so. Um, the majors have always had a yearning to have everything directly under their control. The contraction of the minors actually began when the professional baseball agreement, the PBA, that was always signed between the majors and the minors, usually with the majors dictating terms, the PBA expired in 2020, and the very first thing that they did was eliminate the National Association of Professional Baseball Leagues, the NAPBL, which had been since the 19-teens, I believe, the governing umbrella over all the minors. And they just replaced it with direct major league control, which they had wanted to do for a very long time. So, yeah, there's a direct line between the urgings of the major league owners to control everything directly and starting a guy on second base in extra innings, uh, changing the rules to do whatever you can to maximize the dollars and the, the TV contracts. All of these were the same in the 1990s as well. So yeah, I see a through line very much so. And I see in the plan that was just enacted in 2020, which some people called the Houston plan because the Astros were the big proponents of it. But the Astros are the analytics guys. The Astros are the evaluate all the numbers guys. But Eddie Einhorn was that back in 1991, 31 years ago. So it hasn't changed much. But now they did it. Okay. So with that sort of as as the backdrop, and we'll we'll come back to the end of it in a, in a bit. But let's get let's so f- focus now on these two New York City franchises. There's no other way to put it: the Brooklyn Cyclones and the Staten Island Yankees, because uh, they're obviously a big part of this book, but it's also um, maybe almost uh, a harbinger, perhaps, of what you just described. I guess the, the the way to kind of maybe entree into that would be, I guess, the most innocent question I could ask is, why would a, a single A league uh, uh, and one with such uh, heritage and um, uh, uh, I guess almost almost uh, bucolic uh, uh, beauty, shall we say, in terms of small towns and all that stuff. Even imagine having two teams in the largest metropolitan area in the in the the United States with two gigantically dominating franchises that have a, soak up a ton of media, uh, as well as having relatively brand new stadiums around the time that these two new teams came into being. 
uh, in the minor leagues. Uh, it would seem kind of ironic and uh, almost odd that you would want to have these two uh, very basic uh, minor league franchises literally in the shadows of these two major league teams. What's really interesting is that the impetus for almost all of this was the idea of bringing baseball back to Brooklyn. So the Brooklyn Cyclones are very much the dominant engine that ends up moving the entire story forward. But the Staten Island Yankees are an even better example of what you just described. Um, The original incarnation of the Staten Island Yankees that didn't end up moving here after all was a team called the Oneonta Yankees in Oneonta, New York, in Otsego County, New York, which happens to be the same county as Cooperstown, where the Hall of Fame is located. Um, I got to visit there in 2006 and meet the owner of the Oneonta Yankees, who was then almost 90 years old. Um, His name was Sam Nader, and I dedicated the book in part to him because he was amazing. He really focused me a lot. But the stadium, Damashki Field, that they had, it was a very old-fashioned stadium with just metal grandstands. But when you looked out at the outfield and saw the Catskill Mountains looming over the outfield fences, the old-fashioned outfield fences with poster board of, of local businesses, it was really what you described as bucolic splendor of the game. If you looked at the stadium that they built in Staten Island, it overlooked at the time. It was built in 2001, perfect timing. It looked straight out at the Twin Towers in Lower Manhattan and the Manhattan skyline. So where the Oneonta Yankees looked at this kind of past of baseball and kept the tradition alive, uh, the Staten Island Stadium was supposed to be looking to this urban future. In the 1990s, the New York Penn League teams, many of them were bought by investors who very much wanted to relocate the teams to bigger markets that would promise much more profitability, that would promise much more visibility and brand awareness. And so a bunch of the teams moved to Dutchess County, New York, not that far out of the city, uh, New Jersey, to areas near New York City, but not directly in the territory because the professional baseball agreement said the Mets and Yankees controlled 50 miles around New York City in all directions. So the beginning of the teams coming to New York City really were uh, because an owner of a small Mets team in, or the new owner of the Pittsfield Mets in Massachusetts, Bill Gladstone, the former CEO of Ernst & Young, which should tell you something about the new breed of owners, dreamed of bringing baseball back to the borough of his birth, bringing baseball back to Brooklyn. When the Dodgers left Brooklyn in 1957 because of that bum O'Malley, an entire generation of future billionaires had their hearts torn out of them and desperately wanted to bring baseball back to where it belongs in Brooklyn. Eventually, the plan was to build a stadium in Coney Island so you could match nostalgia for Brooklyn baseball to nostalgia for the bygone days of beautiful Coney Island where so many of these young people spent their summers and fondly remembered the amusement parks and the cyclone roller coaster. And eventually a match could be made where the baseball, the minor league baseball stadium would be put on the steeplechase site that had once been one of the great amusement parks from 1897 to 1964. And uh, baseball would be back in Brooklyn. And that was very much intentional. 
the Mets were the ones who did it. They did not want to share that with any co-owner. So Bill Gladstone went off to Albany, New York instead. Uh, and the Mets brought a franchise to Coney Island, put up a beautiful stadium for a mere $40 million of taxpayer money for which they paid not a dime. Uh, got naming rights from the Keyspan Energy Company for a huge amount of money, only half of which goes to the city and the other half stays with the Mets. Put up a jewel of a stadium that is nostalgic in every way and carefully crafted to be so. They even researched the colors. What were the original colors of Coney Island amusement parks so that the Cyclones colors would go back to that era? The, the Brooklyn Cyclones logo is the B from the Brooklyn Dodgers. And they specifically made a licensing permission deal with the Los Angeles Dodgers to use that B in their BC Brooklyn Cyclones logo. Staten Island, on the other hand, was a completely different story of politics and Rudy Giuliani. Uh, if the Mets got a minor league team in the five boroughs, the Yankees had to get a minor league team in the five boroughs. They shared the territory and they have blocked each other in the past unless they have parity. And so Mayor Giuliani at the time was really desperate to get the Brooklyn Cyclones stadium in, but he knew he had to get a stadium in for the Yankees as well. If Brooklyn got a new stadium, Staten Island had to get a new stadium. Okay. Was and that Staten before, was that legal stuff you're talking about uh, had to have, or was that more just uh, uh, politics and or machismo? Uh, a that combination, but okay. in the professional baseball agreement, officially the territories are shared and in Chicago, for example, Comiskey Park got bulldozed in the early 1990s. Again, Reinsdorfer and Einhorn. Uh, and the Cubs did not get a new stadium. They did not want to do anything to mess with Wrigley Field. So some teams that share territory really don't care what the other one does. But the Mets and Yankees, as you say, this huge media attention, this constant consciousness of each other, you know, if if Daryl Strawberry goes from the Mets to the Yankees, if David Cohen goes from the Yankees to the Mets, uh, everybody hears about it and the back pages are full of it. And so they weren't going to allow one stadium without the other. And the Staten Island choice was a matter of New York City politics. That was Rudy Giuliani and Guy Molinari, the borough president of Staten Island. They made those choices and they made some very poor choices. They picked a bad spot in Staten Island to put it very remote, hard to get to. Beautiful views, but novice owners who then had to pay a lot of money of their own to try to build amenities into their stadium. But yeah, it, it was pretty much a two for one deal. And only six years later, City Field would be built and the new Yankee Stadium would be built. So the way I see it in the book and the way I still feel about it is that the minor league stadiums were actually a dry run for the huge billion dollar stadiums that would come for the major league teams five years later. And all of that was arranged by Rudy Giuliani, who considered himself New York's number one baseball fan. So, but the, that's, so that's interesting. So almost like these are, are sort of templates or, or uh, uh, dry runs, if you will, for what became the, the new cathedral like Yankee stadium and now the new and the then uh, city field. Um, I, Very much so. Especially if you consider all the Met fans who complained that the Wilpons had two too much Brooklyn Dodger stuff at City Field. Well, if you go to uh, the Cyclone Stadium, now Maimonides Park, you'll see a statue of Pee Wee Reese and Jackie Robinson right out front. And I think a Brooklyn Dodgers museum. 
is located there. So yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, connection between the little league, the bush league, and the big league. Yeah. Well, it's so, but how about the character though of the league though? Because you've got two now urban cities in the midst of of what is again probably more suburban and exurban in terms of the of the 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 composition of much of the rest of the league at the time. They saw this as a huge success because so many of the league owners were now millionaire carpetbaggers who were not from the original communities they were from, and a bunch of teams moved in the early 1990s before this point came about. So already everything was kind of uh, in flux with the new money that was coming in, with the fact that a franchise that a couple of investors bought for $125,000 in 1987, they sold for $3 million in 1990, only three years later. So the valuation of the franchises was huge, but only if they would make that money back and be connected to a major league team within their sphere of control. So that's so interesting. And and it's also uh, it also um, is uh, curious that upon the arrival of of, of both of these teams, um, especially the Yankees, uh, the Staten Island Yankees in the early the early days, um, they became quite dominant quite quickly in terms of uh winning championships and and and, and being almost immediately competitive I, I I that seems to also looks like it strikes an imbalance to things too upon their arrival the the Yankees organization has been the envy of so many I, I was listening to sports radio today here in New York as I often do just for background noise. And it was fascinating to hear everybody right now is screaming about general manager Brian Cashman, who was the GM throughout this entire period with the minor league teams, too, and had a thumb in, in all of this. But they're screaming about him that he, we can't win the big one. We can't get there. After all, we made it to the AL championship series again and just didn't get all the way. And I'm like, wait, what? You're making the ALCS or the ALDS. For almost 20 straight years, you never miss the playoffs. You you know, I'm a, a Jets fan in football, and playoffs are a dream for most of the existence of that team. And yet, we're, the Yankees have spoiled their fans because they have an unbelievable sense for their minor league operation. Their farm system is second to none, uh, and they know it. And the Oneonta Yankees won 11 championships all the way out in Oneonta. It had nothing to do with them because the personnel is provided by the major league team. So you have uh, in, in Staten Island, Chin Ming Wong, and you have out in Oneonta, Don Mattingly playing and Jim Leyritz and Jorge Posada and all these future major leaguers started in short season A and made their way up to the top. If you go to the Cyclones, they are incredibly successful as a minor league franchise but they are not necessarily as successful on the field in terms of championships, in terms of developing players who make it all the way up to the majors. Uh, their marketing plan at one point was see the stars of tomorrow today. But the problem is that other franchises haven't managed to do that, to channel their lower level development into eventual ma major leaguers is something the Yankees are unmatched at, at least certainly in the New York Penn League. Okay, so um, let me circle back then again on, on on why both of these teams came into being. So, so Rudy Giuliani, and and you know, let's not talk about his present day 
uh, he's yeah. another one. I would love to have interviewed that man. And yeah, I would have well, promised in advance, I'll just talk about baseball. I won't talk about anything else, but yeah. I couldn't get through the handlers. That's for sure. <laughs> no, you know, let's see if, if he winds up going to jail, you, he may have plenty of time to talk to you, but, but that I digress. Um, I, I, what, what, Okay, I, I'm trying to just get wrap my head around why this was a great idea in his mind and in others' minds. Um because uh, it you know, um I, I I'm just trying to figure it out. What is it a real estate play? Is it is it to is it is it throwing a bone to the the owners of the Yankees and the Mets? Uh is it is it territorial uh uh aggrandizement? Is it uh uh uh, is there some sort of economic benefit that's sort of perceived uh, as being helpful to Brooklyn and to to Staten Island, uh, aside from the fact that bringing baseball back to Brooklyn is a is a good storyline? I'm just does the does the New York City metropolitan area and these two boroughs uh, and then and the new stadiums built, um, is there a dearth of of baseball uh, uh, in those environments at that time, it, it, is is the, the the populace screaming for more baseball uh, beyond the two major league teams? Is, is there a financial windfall that 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 is is blindingly obvious that needs to be filled? What is it that's driving this? In Rudy Giuliani's mind, the short answer to all of those questions is yes, uh, but in reality, it, it of course was very complicated. Giuliani uh, talked about baseball, specifically the Yankees and the Mets, in both of his inaugural addresses in 1994 and again in 1998. And he said that this was going to be an economic engine that was going to drive progress in New York City. It was going to do incredible things for our economy, but he was never very concrete about what that would be. Uh, It was going to be amazing. And we're going to build all these new stadiums and it's going to be great for New York. You know, his his image was, as he put it, ironically, of course, later, but he used to say uh, kids are going to be hitting home runs from Staten Island between the two twin towers. uh, And you'll see what an amazing thing this is going to be for New York. So there was a lot going on in terms of the stadium building. Some of it had to do with Giuliani's uh, real power plays. I don't want to say dictatorial because that might seem unfair, but certainly his uh, leadership he felt he could demonstrate by getting his projects done. Uh, He also felt this was a necessary prelude to keep the teams in New York, not let the Yankees run to New Jersey for the big stadiums that were going to be built shortly after. So he made all kinds of claims. He relied on different stadium economics that a lot of teams have pitched, something called economic multipliers, about how it's going to turn into all kinds of money for the tax base and all kinds of jobs for people. And it's going to stimulate spending money on leisure time, none of which, of course, has ever proven to be economically true. Um, The Brooklyn Stadium has tapped into something when you talk about a a dearth of baseball in New York. The Brooklyn Stadium has grabbed the imaginations of Brooklynites, both current and past, as being a real return to the golden days of Brooklyn gone by. Uh, The five boroughs now are going through all of the problems that many major cities across America are going through. But when you go to the park where the Cyclones are going to play, it's like being in an old-fashioned baseball game with the Cyclone right over the left field fence, uh, you know, tumbling down and people screaming as they go. It's a wonderful old Coney Island feeling. 
So Brooklyn baseball really has grabbed a hold of the imagination of all of the people who are involved with it. Staten Island never did. It was always a poor second place to everything else. That was really done because of New York City politics and Giuliani's Republican ally, Guy Molinari, the borough president of Staten Island. A sure legendary. Oh, he was he was something else. He was a force in Staten Island politics. They called his family the Staten Island Kennedys for a while between him and his daughter, Susan Molinari. They had a lot of power and they wanted the stadium in St. George, which was the worst possible place to put it. But he had a vision of a, a Staten Island Lighthouse Museum and development in the North Shore, and it was going to be great. And it never panned out that way. People didn't come to the stadium. The jobs never got created. People in the neighborhood resented having the stadium there. They said it's going to cause traffic jams, which unfortunately it never did. Um, and not only that, but the stadium ended up costing $80 million because they chose a toxic site of a former rail yard that the city had to buy from CSX rail y- railways and then cleanse and detox in order to put a stadium there. So uh, the economic benefits have always been negligible, except to the teams. The teams made out like bandits. Um, the Yankees didn't care where they developed their really stellar farm players. They could do it in Oneonta. They could do it in Trenton. They could do it here in Staten Island. No matter how you did it, they were perfectly happy with it. As witnessed the fact that when the minor leagues were contracted, the Staten Island Yankees were cut completely loose. The Cyclones were kept and promoted to a higher level of baseball because the Cyclones are so incredibly lucrative. It also provided a model for a future team down in Aberdeen, Maryland, uh, owned by Cal Ripken Jr., which has been a huge success, the Aberdeen Ironbirds. Um, They also are close to Baltimore, just a couple of miles outside, right there on the highway. Um, It's a jewel of a stadium built completely at taxpayer expense down there. Uh, And it is the only rival that the Cyclones ever had to kind of dominance on the upper echelon of the New York Penn League. But that was the future, at least at that time. And um, give me a sense of how fans kind of uh, uh, reacted to all of it. I mean, obviously, uh, Brooklyn, you know, uh, having been bereft of of the Dodgers for so for so many years, Staten Island getting uh, recognized and noticed, if you will. I mean, and the two major league teams uh you know uh, stocking them and and being officially related to them um uh, you know was it uh, uh, what was the response around the league uh what was the response to the um the fans and and the relative ease by which to get to these brand new stadiums um uh, novelty uh a, a, a real depth of fandom um you know afterthought what what of it It's a tale of two franchises. Uh, The Staten Island Yankees were always an afterthought. Staten Islanders themselves never took to them. They weren't put in a spot where they could have got people right off the highway who could then get back on the Staten Island Expressway if they wanted afterwards. Uh, And they became an afterthought. Usually a new owner would come along. There would be enthusiasm for a season or two, and then it would die down again. They've changed hands several times. The Yankees saw them as a chip in the incredible Yankees organization, which is how they think in a corporate strategic manner. There's the Yankees organization and the Yankees name. The new owners of the team were told, you're naming it the Staten Island Yankees. When new owners took over recently, they tried one season to change the name to the Staten Island Pizza Rats, 
after that pizza rat story of a rat in the subway dragging a slice of pizza along with it. The Yankees had some furious emails that became public later where they said, what are you doing? You are cheapening the Yankee brand. The Cyclones were always different. The Cyclones were the Wilpons, and to, especially Fred Wilpons, dream of Brooklyn baseball coming back. So they were owned completely by the team, where the Staten Island Yankees, the Yankees owned 49%, and the smaller minor league owner owned 51%. Um, the Cyclones were always 100% owned by the Mets. The Cyclone Stadium was planned with great detail by the Wilpons and the Mets. I don't know how the new owner of the Mets, Steve Cohen, regards the Cyclones, but certainly they're a cash cow. And the merchandise, I think, sells better than any other minor league team in America. Ironically, the general manager of the Brooklyn Cyclones is also named Steve Cohen. Uh, and I uh, got to interview him back in uh, uh, 2006. So I say I interviewed Steve Cohen, but it's not that Steve Cohen. Interesting. So, uh, but it's a, you say tale of two two city two cities, tale of two teams. Um, the um, the league, though, uh, the, I mean, it's clear that they're uh, when they showed up. I mean, they didn't sort of dominate per se, but they certainly made a large imprint uh, on on the league in terms of uh, did they sop up the attention? Did they uh, uh, were they uh, they seem to be a little bit more successful than some of these uh, longer running franchises that have that, that made up the bulk of the rest of the league. They, they made a huge splash, but the league around that time, the early 2000s into the 2010s, almost started to divide. At the top of the league, there were four or five truly successful teams that had uh, the team in Fishkill in Dutchess County had, I think, 62 straight sellouts. Uh, and there were the top four or five that did incredibly well. Then there were a bunch of middling teams, and then there were the bottom dwellers. And so basically all anybody could say was, yeah, Brooklyn's amazing, but we're not in Brooklyn and we'll never be Brooklyn. Uh, the Staten Island Yankees, on the other hand, were never close to Brooklyn, and they felt the pressure because they were right here across the Verrazano Bridge. They tried very hard to make it into a rivalry. They, they called it the Verrazano Bridge Series and the Verrazano Rivalry. And it just never took because the Brooklyn fans sold out no matter who was coming to town. And the Yankees fans wouldn't show up no matter who was coming to Staten Island. So, yeah, it, it certainly impacted the league in a big way and kept that strategy going of expansion and closer connection to our major league counterpart. Uh, by the end of the uh, league, they were in eight states, which was far too many for a single, you know, short single A short season league. But one of the teams, the Mahoning Valley Scrappers, was less than ninety miles from Cleveland, I think, and they were owned by the Indians. And the Indians and the Scrappers had a similar relationship to the Mets and the Brooklyn Cyclones, that they were very close by geographically, and they tried to cross market and cross promote, and it did very well for them even though their baseball stadium was actually literally in a shopping mall. But it was a $6 million stadium, so what the heck? I still get emails from the scrappers who still exist even after contraction. So, but we're also talking about, uh, and your your book goes into this pretty extensively, these are two, because of the nature of the fact of the New York City and, and the politics and the unions and whatever's behind the unions and all that stuff, you're talking about now two in, in the, the turn of, 
of the decade in 2000, 2001. You're talking about two of the the most expensive at the time minor league baseball stadiums uh, across the in the in the nation, let alone this league. Um, yeah, the Staten Island Stadium was eighty million dollars, which was more than anything had ever been before. Since then, they have built a AAA Las Vegas stadium that I think was one hundred and fifty five million dollars. And took three, four years to build because they got stuck in the pandemic. But but that's insane, though, because that you're talking that's triple A. We're talking barely single here and only thirty nine home games a year. Exactly. It, it made no sense. <laughs> that's why I had to write the book. I was like, what the heck, man? How did they do this? But yeah, it made no economic sense. Giuliani did it mostly behind the scenes without public review, without public, certainly without public approval. He just allocated the money uh, and he very much made it happen because of the force of his governance style and the fact that New York was doing well at the time. So nobody thought to to argue with it when we spent a billion dollars each on a pair of major league stadiums. Very few people blinked. Well, so, okay. you, but, you know, you, within you, the course of, of 10 years, within the course of five years, we spent two and a half billion dollars on four baseball stadiums. It's, so you, it's hard to yeah, imagine you, that makes sense. You, you describe the Cyclones essentially being largely very successful financially, and and Staten Island's Yankees essentially not so. Uh, more debt and 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 uh, than and and just a, a, a I don't know. I to to what extent do you ascribe those uh, situations? Uh, the Cyclones being pretty solid and pretty stable and and the Yankees not being so. Uh, is it because of their different geographies? Is it because their owners took different approaches with them? Um, uh, why do you think they went in such different directions? I mean, I, the, the location, you know, you're mentioning the Staten Island's location being less than favorable than that of, uh, of Brooklyn's, which is literally a stone's throw from from um from Coney Island I mean what what why the, the 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 dramatic difference given the grand union uh that that uh Giuliani had and and brought into play as they both arrived at the same time it's kind of all of the above um the Brooklyn Cyclones had every advantage but really where it started and I, I argued this at one point in the book which is one reason it took me 20 years to write I needed an ending which when I really was writing in 2010, there wasn't one yet. And then when the league vanished, I was like, oh, they wrote my ending. I have to get back going again. And I realized that the, the Brooklyn Cyclones were the jewel of the Mets minor league system, even though they were the lowest level club that they owned and controlled. A short season single A team that only played, as I said, 39 home games, 78 games total. But right there in their backyard, very high profile, baseball back in Brooklyn with the Mets controlling every aspect of how the stadium went up, how the team was operated. Um, R.C. Reutemann, uh, who has since passed away, but uh, I got to interview him. He was the senior vice president brought in to see that the Cyclones were a success after he did the same in AAA Binghamton for the previous couple of years and was even a co-owner of the Binghamton franchise. Reutemann said, we were uh, the highest priority for the Mets. 
If we wanted something, we got it. If we asked for something, they provided it. So it location was spectacular. As you say, a stone's throw from Coney Island and the Belt Parkway, so fans could easily come and go. Giuliani had said they would stay in Coney Island and spend all their money, but they didn't. They spent their money on, on parking, got back in the car, and drove home to Long Island or Queens right after the game was over. But the location was great. The stadium was beautiful. Again, because the Wilpons were obsessive about making sure that it was. The players and managers, the coaches, were frequently 1986 Mets or other Met stars from the years. Ah, so it very, yes, Mookie Wilson yes. was in there. and Edgardo Alfonso was yeah. one of their coaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Wally Backman was there at one point. Yes. So they had every connection that you could want to make to Brooklyn baseball, Brooklyn Dodgers, and New York Mets. So it was a perfect storm of National League fandom that brought the people in and made us loyal to the club. I went to Cyclones games, and I have to say I had a spectacular time. Everything was top flight. Everything was first class. It was definitely the way to go. The Staten Island Yankees had every disadvantage. The location was poor. The stadium was really nice, but it started to deteriorate because of the sea air that was coming in and because of choices made by the owners who were novices and had never tried before. They decided that they were going to try to bring in fans from Manhattan who would take the Staten Island Ferry uh, and then watch a game at seven o'clock at night on a weeknight. They didn't reckon with what it would take to get a guy who had worked all day in Manhattan as the owner, Josh Getzler, told me later, who wants to schlep for a half an hour on the ferry, stay for a game, and then schlep back to Manhattan and then get home again at 10 o'clock? So the distance, the marketing, the but the biggest problem was, again, the attitude from the top. To the New York Yankees, they handed the franchise over to these guys, said, we're giving you the Yankee name. That should be enough to make it a success. You're on your own from here. They wouldn't cross market. They wouldn't promote the Staten Island Yankees at Yankee Stadium because Yankee Stadium is for Yankee Stadium, not Staten Island Yankee Stadium. So they didn't have to do any kind of marketing of the minor league club or give away free tickets. Why would we give you free tickets? And so there was kind of an attitude of you guys handled this. That's why we took you on as partners and gave you the benefit of the brand umbrella and unfortunately, there was some naivete there on the part of the leaders. There was the political interference that put the stadium where it did by Guy Molinari. There was the lack of interest of Staten Islanders in baseball, which is an interesting phenomenon that they might not have been able to predict. Um, Josh Getzler told me later he wished they had done some more studies of the residents to see what they were looking for. They couldn't bring people in from out of state. People from Jersey aren't going to come to Staten Island. That's the other thing about Staten Island. If you're a New Yorker, you know this. You have to pay a toll no matter where you're coming from and no matter where you're going to. These days, I think it's $19. It used to be $17 round trip. That adds to the expense of an affordable night at a minor league game with a $5 ticket. It's not so affordable anymore. So they really were working from a disadvantage. And the biggest disadvantage was always, how are the Cyclones doing? Oh, they've topped us in attendance by hundreds of thousands of people. So in comparison to the Cyclones, they always suffered, too, and that didn't help. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and the view actually is quite, quite nice. Um, but, yeah, I can see where, you know, located. Uh, uh, yeah. And Staten Island is one of those geographically challenged uh, environments. It, it, it's it's a little similar, although 
for different reasons to why um but there are other reasons to neglect like downing stadium on randall's island uh, oh, yeah. was, you know uh, on, on many fronts looked upon as being back in the 70s you know for the cosmos and the the new the ill-fated new york stars of the world football league and and, and some other other teams and stuff that sort of came and went um location pretty interesting but actually it wound up being quite challenging because it was sort of in between things and 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 very ill located to get into and out of when you're looking at traffic going from uh you know across the the, the expressways and the and the uh, but yeah very I much i mean yeah, for I can... those unfamiliar with staten island you would get off the verrazano bridge on the staten island expressway and then you had 20 minutes of side streets and on a weeknight if you're going for a tuesday night game a wednesday night game then Every traffic light is going to work against you. Uh, and then uh, there's no public transportation to get there. They opened a subway station with some fanfare without ever stopping to think, does anybody on Staten Island use the subway? And the answer is no. Uh, the ferry stop was right next door, but it's a long ferry journey back to Manhattan if it's a half hour each way. So it was really very remote as Staten Island goes for people to come and, and and come see the games. And then the last couple of years of the first owners, it rained almost every night. And you get some of those summers. If you have a rain out in a 39 home game season, that can be a disaster for a team on the financial edge. Yeah, it's interesting too. And you look at the geography too. It's, um, uh, you know, Staten Island uh, is actually, in many respects, actually much closer to uh, the state of New Jersey, right? Um, yeah. You know the the, it's view the place and, you drive through on your way to somewhere else. Well, yeah, and it's uh, it's just it's interesting. I again, it's the fate of I guess of geography, but but I, I do you know I do want to dig in a little bit on the, the 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 Yankees. I wouldn't call it apathy, but it does seem like there's not a lot of nurturing there, right? Where where the that's Met, how it oh, seemed to me. Yeah, and what's I mean, interesting you know. is that before the Staten Island Club, they had a 32 year relationship with Sam Nader up in Oneonta, uh, and Sam was I think probably the perfect co-owner for them because he was independent. He was interested in Oneonta. He had once been the men, the mayor of the town. He had brought baseball there. He was part of the group of 10 investors all in their eighties and nineties by then who had spent money on the team and they didn't ask the Yankees for much. They got the best players and they marketed themselves. Look, you can see future Yankees here in the middle of nowhere. And it worked, but they always had the lowest attendance in the league for, you know, 20 years running. But they won championships. But Sam was very independently minded, and he was the perfect partner for what Cashman and Lon Trost and all of the uh, Dan, all of the Yankees brass wanted. The, when they encountered the newer owners who were looking to them for guidance and help and assistance, and you can't blame them because they had spent more than a million dollars on the team and Sam Nader had spent a couple of hundred dollars back in 1966. So the new owners were like, hey, we put a hefty nut into this. We need help to make it profitable. And the Yankees said, well, you know, you have the Yankee name. What more could you possibly need? It also it also seems to me that um, uh, if you think about it from a media perspective and advertising, right? New York and the New York metropolitan area is just so large, gigantic and, and gargantuan. Um, you know, quote unquote, local advertising is, is you know, uh, to do stuff on radio or, or television in that market, right? It's just you're beaming it to everybody in the metropolitan area. There's no, 
uh, slicing and dicing. I mean, obviously there's cable and local newspapers and stuff, but it, it does remind me though, or it does just sort of bring out uh, what seems to be a, a need uh, to be quite hyper-local and neighborhood-oriented, uh, perhaps uh, as sort of your bread and butter. And it seems to me like Brooklyn maybe had a little inherent advantage, perhaps maybe even than, than Staten Island did in terms of it being its its hometown team, so to speak, right? Because it's hard to to market the Brooklyn Cyclones or the Staten Island Yankees to the broader metropolitan area when the Yankees and the Mets are kind of doing that, plus all the other distractions and entertainment options that that New York offers, right? So you almost need to double down on the uh, the neighborhood uh, sort of versions of these two teams, and and arguably that's what you know the the rest of the league had going for them because they were the literally the only games in their respective towns. So it's kind of like a, a double edged sword here with these two teams um, to kind of you know fill the fill the stadiums every day and and market the hell out of themselves. And and how do you do that in such a gigantic metropolitan area? Very much so. It's a saturated market and there's a million and one options for how you want to spend your entertainment dollar. And for everything that the other teams might've said, oh my God, you have an $80 million stadium. At the same time, I'm not sure they envied the task that the Staten Island Yankees had to try to accomplish. For, for to be a small player in such a big market with so few games and the New York Yankees playing, what, 81 home games at the same time, sometimes on the same night, right there in, in, in the Bronx with better transportation accessibility with the current stars of the Yankees, it, it was impossible to overcome. If you're in Fishkill, you can have 62 straight sellouts because if you're a sports fan what options have you got but if you're in new york city wow i mean that was a, a tall order and i don't think they ever cracked that code it was just very hard for them right and the, but the affordability thing wasn't enough of a distinction for these two teams huh except to get to staten island wasn't so affordable so for a five or ten dollar ticket that's pretty great the cyclones i think routinely charged a little more because they could because even if you charge 12 or 14 dollars you know, compared to what it's going to cost to go to City Field and just park your car for $38, it's a bargain. And it's a beautiful field where you're practically right on top of the field because it's only got 7,500 seats and everyone has a great view. You could see baseball close up. So the Staten Island Yankees could offer that too, but it was less enticing to the Staten Islanders who, you know, if you want to watch the real Yankees, just turn on cable, turn on the Yes Network, and you've got it right there. Or right, go so, to the game. So let's put this in context then. So so the the great sort of expansion, if you will, these two teams in the early aughts in the New York City metropolitan area. Um, what effect is it then now at that time and then the years having on the New York Penn League? And then maybe kind of put it into some further context. Is it hurting or helping the league? And uh, because it winds up being one of the leagues contracted, I I guess I'm trying to ask is, is this the beginning of the end of the league uh, without it knowing it or or is it's uh, folding by Major League Baseball a different sort of issue altogether? Well, the funny thing is that by the mid 2010s, 
The league was actually more successful strictly in terms of numbers than it had ever been. It had 14 teams. It had better attendance than it had ever had before. It had more market visibility, if you count the Aberdeen Ironbirds and the Brooklyn Cyclones, and to a lesser extent, the Staten Island Yankees. They innovated an all-star game. They were trying to make a splash everywhere that they were, and they had a whole bunch of new stadiums. So arguably, they were as successful as they had ever been. But it really was kind of the beginning of the end, because once the minors become the majors, once what it's about is millionaires who own teams and profitability being the ultimate goal and much more control by the majors over what happens to the minors. Uh, One of the things that the New York Penn league could not control entirely was franchise relocation. They had to get it approved by the big leagues as of the late PBAs of the early two thousands, no longer could they make decisions that were best for the league as a whole. So no matter how great the set, the uh, Brooklyn Cyclones were, no matter how profitable they were, the leagues were by that point paying the lion's share of a lot of their profits to the major owners anyway. Um, the Brooklyn Cyclones paid the same league fees that all the other teams paid. They, whatever it cost to be on the league board of directors, that's what they paid. So it didn't necessarily translate over, except maybe you had a better crowd the night the Cyclones came to town but that rarely seemed to spill over to the local teams. So as far as the effect on the league, hard to say that it really lifted the entire league, but it certainly lifted its profile. People knew what the New York Penn League was because, oh, that's Cal Ripken's Ironbirds and that's the Brooklyn Cyclones. Oh, that league, I've heard of them. You know, More so perhaps than an Appalachian League or a North Carolina League or, or one of those. Is it the beginning of the end of the league? Sort of. Because certainly the transition to this new model of how to do business made them a bigger target for the majors when they were deciding on how they were going to progress a year or two ago in terms of the future. But one of the things that I argue, I think, implicitly in the book is that the whole league from the beginning was a business venture by the St. Louis Cardinals. The majors always controlled the fate of a lot of the minor league teams in terms of their player development agreements and their affiliation with the major league team. Very few independents ever made a go of it for more than a couple of years. You needed the major league brand for the oomph and the recognizability, and most of all for the players and coaches because they were always sent by the major league team. So, It started with business in 1939. It ended with a business decision in in 2020, 2019 that had really been contemplated since 1991. So there's a through line in the whole thing of the majors doing what's best for the majors and the New York Penn League's history and its tradition. And you know how much baseball loves history and tradition and numbers Think about the Barry Bonds asterisk and the discussions about whether or not he's ever going to make it to the Hall of Fame. Uh, Brooklyn more than uh, Brooklyn, I'm sorry, baseball more than any other sport is a sport that values all of the traditions that led it to this point. But at this point, we've changed the rules for the playoffs. At this point, we've added wild cards. At this point, we're contemplating an incredible reorganization of baseball just over the last couple of days where we're going to take all of the National League, American League rivalries and history 
and we're going to just stick it in the hopper and reboot version 2.0. The lords of baseball are not interested in the history and tradition the way the fans of baseball often are. And the death of the New York Penn League to me was a tragedy because I had gone to all of these stadiums and interviewed all of these people and seen the uniqueness of each community, even as the game itself between the lines doesn't change. But the communities, the stadiums, the experience, very different, but not anymore. Now we're looking for homogeneous stadiums that all look alike, and that's how baseball wants it. All right. Well, I want to get to that sort of that denouement in a second. Um because it's important and and, and telling and 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 current, um, but um, I I guess what I I um, I'm really trying to sort of uh, trying to figure out is, um, and it's just it's, it's the whole thing is interesting. I mean, the Yankees, the Staten Island Yankees were you know had won eight championships during their time there, right? And and yeah. Brooklyn only won two. Yet you're talking about Brooklyn being a more successful situation in franchise. Than Staten Island was, uh, which is interesting and ironic. But I also find it interesting and ironic that uh, this league would be one the one or one of the uh, entities that would be contracted or dismissed, if you will, from uh, the the grand plan of Major League Baseball over its minor league uh, underlings, because uh, the density of the teams in the Northeast, um, you know, just seems like it, it's such a natural fit. And and such a cradle, right? I mean, you're mentioning the Baseball Hall of Fame being in Anianta and Ari Cooperstown and 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 in in that area, and and to not have uh, the density of these kinds of teams at this lower level and this sort of quaintness. Um, I mean, sure, there are the you know the the collegiate you know summer bat leagues, I guess, but they're not quite the same thing as as the the the, the pure play you know uh, class. Low class A league uh, baseball things, and it just seems odd that you wouldn't want to sort of uh, continue that, at least some fashions of that, as much as possible, uh, in and around where you know, kind of the the, the baseball's history is uh, is you know constantly uh, uh, remembered. You know, the Hall of Fame and all that kind of stuff, and the Hall of Fame game and all that stuff. I, I think that's why the Hall of Fame arguments are so passionate. Because baseball is no longer the steward of its own past. And baseball no longer respects its own traditions. Uh, And when I say baseball, I mean organized baseball as controlled by the Major League Baseball structure, by the commissioner. And, And I may be being too harsh, but if you look at their actions, if you look at what they did, they didn't actually contract with sensitivity or care for what entities were leaving in place, what makes sense geographically. What they contracted was based entirely on profitability and personal connections. They decided they're going to knock out 40 of their teams. They're going to go from 160 down to 120. They're just going to vaporize 25% of the teams in minor league baseball. And along the way, several leagues were disbanded or reconstituted under different names and in different ways. But what's interesting in the New York Penn League, for example, is that not all the teams were contracted equally. So the Brooklyn Cyclones were preserved, just moved to a different league that maybe made less geographic sense, but which made money sense to both the Mets and the majors. Um, The 
Yeah, Hudson now called Valley. the south, now that now it was the high east region would now call this right. on the South Atlantic what, League. What some of them are calling A plus. Sure. Uh, instead of double A or A, now they're A plus. They're right, right in geographically, the though, it's all along the Atlantic coast. I guess it goes from Georgia, New York to Georgia, right? To talk about, I mean, that there's higher travel costs. Uh, the regionality is, yeah, I don't know. If I don't know. You're creating new, I don't know what the rivalries are, but it just, yeah, it just seems antithetical to. Yeah, you've lost what made Brooklyn the New York Penn League. Came from. Yeah. You lost what made the New York Penn League unique, but they saved Brooklyn. And then they saved Hudson Valley up in in slightly upstate New York because the Hudson Valley Renegades are owned by Marvin Goldklang, who's a minority owner in the New York Yankees organization and who also owned four or five minor league teams at different levels, almost all of which were preserved because of Goldklang's connections. So the Hudson Valley Renegades are saved because of who owns them. The Cyclones are saved because of who owns them, the Mets directly, plus the profitability. The Mahoning Valley Scrappers are saved. Why? Because they're owned directly by the Cleveland Indians and they make money. Uh, so, you know, not all vaporized teams were vaporized equally. And they weren't saved because of their geographical location, because of their historic rivalry. They were saved for individual reasons for each of the teams that was spared. You are spared because. You are spared because. But then you've decimated the league and left everybody else, the other 11 teams, to try to figure it out for themselves. And some of them become a college league and some of them become a wooden bat league and a dream league, which was interesting because in all of these cases, Major League Baseball took back their subsidies and said, you can own a team, but you have to pay for everything. And we won't market you as a, an affiliate of a major league team. We're going to market you as a future stars team. That's much smaller as well. And that way we don't have to pay as many salaries. So it's fascinating sort of how contraction was done and how unevenly it was applied because it really didn't depend on what made sense logically. It depended on what made sense economically or personally to the people who were doing the contracting. Yeah. So the, the bulk of these teams in this New York Penn League did go that collegiate baseball sort of realm, right? The perfect game league, the MLB draft league. I mean, not a, not unlike the um, uh, the the um, uh, the the playing coast league um, uh, or coastal plain league, excuse me, that the Savannah Bananas just emanated from. Uh, right. The Cape Cod League, uh, which has been there for time and memoriam. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a couple of other sort of things like, uh, I mean, Tri-City went the independent league realm. with the Well, and here's league, the right? other thing to think about is that it's not just the future of the team or the owners or the, the, the place in their hearts. It's also the stadiums. In many cases, many of these teams had multi-million dollar stadiums just built by municipalities who are then told, by the way, your team is not a team anymore. So they spent millions of dollars to build these stadiums, and now what? So that was also kind of a, an issue of what to do. For a lot of the New York Penn League teams, their stadiums weren't quite as new anymore, and their communities weren't quite as big, and hey, an offer to stay in business is an offer to stay in business. So yeah, a lot of them went with the Dream League, the Wooden Bat League, the, the MLB Draft League, whatever it was that their opportunities were. And you were mentioning, I'm so sorry for cutting you off, but you were mentioning the Tri-City Valley Cats, who had been originally the Pittsfield Mets owned by Bill Gladstone, who passed away during the pandemic. And now his son, Doug Gladstone, owns Tri-City. 
and they were offered the chance to be an, uh, part of these little, you know, you pay for everything and get very little back sort of leagues. And they said, no, we won't do it. We'd rather be independent. We'd rather be a league that has a fighting chance to create rivalries and to create a baseball that's exciting to the people who live around Troy, New York, which is right near Albany, New York, as their local team. And they've, they've done well that way, but they didn't go quietly. Uh, and it's interesting, too, that uh, ironically, well, not ironically, what's what's uh, now uh, uh, replaced uh, the Staten Island Yankees, though, though I guess not historically, they, the team folded and then there was a replacement team. Uh, and also the in independently, the Atlantic League is the, um, uh, the is Ferry the, Hawks, the Ferry Hawks. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting that two of these teams in this league went the independent route. Um, one uh, met its fate and, and did not come back, the Lowell Spinners. Um, and then the rest of them all seems looks like they went to the collegiate baseball uh, route uh, for those uh, and the, the three that didn't that, uh, you know, soldier on in in, in my major leagues, minor league um, uh, 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 South. Uh, I can't even keep these straight South Atlantic leagues. Right. Which which yeah. is geographically nonsensical. Um, what happens after the dust settles? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, and you see a bunch of people said we'll survive any way we can. And they took the lowest option, but they took it because what's the alternative in Morgantown, West Virginia? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, 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 I think it's kind of a shame. And all right. So I guess we'll do a cul-de-sac here and I don't want to be sort of the old man yelling at the clouds, but I mean, (laughs) I look at, I look at, you know, you look at the visual of the South Atlantic league and you see the concentration of teams in the Northeast and, you know, the Wilmington blue rocks, et cetera. And, but then you see this concentration of teams in South Carolina and North Carolina. It's a, it's, it's a the Southern division and a Northern division. It's just, it's um it just seems so antithetical to the quaintness, I guess, of what the New York Penn league was all about. And, and it's, it's rich history and it's relatively time uh, uh, honored rivalries and, and the smaller towns and, and that kind of stuff. And, and, um, it, it just, it's kind of sad. I, a couple of questions there. Let, let's let So how do you think independent baseball <coughs> will live in Staten Island with the Ferry Hawks going into their second year? Uh, and, uh, uh you know, and uh, a tri city in Troy. Um, I mean, it, it, what of independent baseball, uh, how strong is it? I mean, it's certainly, it certainly continues to be a wellspring of innovation for sure. Well, I actually love the Ferry Hawks idea, and they were wonderful to me when we went. I brought my brother to take pictures uh, of the stadium from the inside for the book, and they couldn't have been more kind and, and helpful. And what's interesting is that this was the original offer to the Staten Island Yankees, but the hedge fund guys who owned the club were furious, and they refused to accept it and accused the Yankees and Major League Baseball a breach of contract. So instead, the uh, Major League Baseball courted somebody else, and they found John Katsimides, who once ran for mayor or governor of New York, uh, a supermarket shopping center yeah, magnate. Governor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, he was more than happy to move in and jump into Staten Island baseball. But I can pretty much guarantee what's going to happen to the Ferry Hawks despite the fact that they have a phenomenal logo, despite the fact that the stadium was renovated again for another $8 million of taxpayer money just last year 
to suit the new team that was going to come in is that after a year or two, attendance will tail off and Staten Island baseball lack of interest will assert itself. So the independent history, the independent league history, I think in Staten Island is going to resemble a lot of the prior history in Staten Island and the Tri-City Valley Cats, the Troy, New York team was very successful in their metropolitan area with a front office that really knew what it was doing. And that front office is still intact. And I think that they're going to do better by far, despite not having as much of a connection to major league baseball, because to my mind, and this is only a personal opinion, what major league baseball is doing is cheapening its own product right now by shaking up all of the history and rivalries that used to exist. Baseball is going to be baseball. So why not watch frontier league baseball? Major league baseball isn't what it used to be anymore. So uh, I think that, that a lot of it will depend on the individual places and people who run things as much as whether or not they're part of the professional baseball structure that has kicked them out and has ejected them from being part of the family. It's interesting. The uh, uh, the uh, Ferryhawks has a, a, a star studded uh, ownership group. I mean, uh, besides yeah. Castamides, who who owns WABC Radio and Big Apple Radio, he has a station in, in Long Island as well. Uh, but Colin Jost and Pete Davidson and Michael Che uh, of of Saturday Night Live fame are, are part of that group and stuff. And da- da- Danny Garcia, who's uh, now rebuilding the uh, the XFL with uh, uh, with her former husband. I mean, you, um, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you think that. Well, there's got to be something there. Obviously, clearly it's investment. Well, right? clearly. If they're going to succeed, I think that would be the phenomenal thing to focus on because Lord knows these days, Colin Yost and Pete Davidson and the famous Staten Islanders are getting a tremendous amount of attention and are trying to showcase their own Staten Island identity by one of the old ferries and turning it into a planned club. I think that the ferry hawks could use that very well as a, a kind of interest Sports by itself, baseball by itself, I'm not sure how well that's going to do for them. But I, I wish them the best. I really, I love the stadium and I love what they're trying to do. But the question is, can they succeed in overcoming apathy? And that's a hard thing to succeed in. And every successive owner has found that to be true, unfortunately. All right. So so let's round this up then. So 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 what to make of of this of this uh, of this situation, the the end of the 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 longest uh, running uh, minor league in baseball, the New York Penn League. Uh, these two uh, brash New York based teams uh, that sort of uh, suffer different fates, but soldier on in in different forms uh, now with their still relatively new stadia. Um, uh, you know, doing minor league baseball in the big cities in the big city. Um, what what do you what to make of it? I mean, was it all for naught? And and is is Major League Baseball now the um, I don't know the Darth Vader, I guess, of the sport? Is it getting in the sport's own way, so to speak, with this whole minor league uh, reconstruction, so to speak? And and now, frankly, this year, you know the the uh, the the you know the the major uh, new rules, which I think, frankly, some people would argue are, are not a bad thing, and uh, tinkered with in the minors. Um, but frankly, also now that the decimation, if you will, of what used to be the American league and the national league with these, um, you know, these hollowed out schedules and everybody playing each other. 
I, I think in many ways, baseball is its own worst enemy. I really do. Um, one thing about the NFL is that they are incomparably successful, but they also know what works and they lean into that. And if there are controversies over whether the refereeing is any good, if there are controversies and how individual games end and how different things end in the season, that only stokes the fire of interest in the game. But they haven't done a radical realignment of their divisions. They are not going to split up the Philadelphia Eagles and the New York football giants and the Dallas Cowboys because they understand part of what got them there. Baseball is much more reliant on its history and its traditions and it's, as they used to brag during World War II, the, the American values and democracy that baseball represents. Uh, think about the speeches that uh, Annie Savoy gives in Bull Durham, where she sees baseball as re really the American dream in many ways writ large. And what the major leagues have done is dismantled the structural aspect that keep that vision of baseball afloat. The idea that we have long-time rivalries that span generations. The Yankees hate the Red Sox, and the Red Sox hate the Yankees right back. And the Red Sox never win, and the Yankees always win. Until suddenly in the 2000s, the Red Sox win, and the Yankees can't seem to win, at least in the big level of it all. That's what keeps bringing people back. If you take a child, if you take a, a son, a grandson, to the Hall of Fame, every family has pictures of the father or grandfather with the grandson pointing at different displays and at famous players' busts and the plaques and at the history of what the game is. It's at the heart of who we're going to let into the Hall of Fame or not. Is Pete Rose going to get in? Is Barry Bonds going to get in? Is it the Hall of the Great or the Hall of the Very Good? It matters to people. And while I personally think a pitch clock is a great idea for the upcoming generation, while I think that speeding up the pace of play and getting interest back somehow into the game is something that they're desperate for, what it really comes down to in many cases are the $350 million contracts and the television deals uh, and the money aspect of it that has come to so dominate baseball news in America over the past 30 or 40 years. And that doesn't seem to be changing anytime soon. So the New York Penn League represented something in newspaper and magazine profiles that they said was pure about baseball, that they said was real about baseball tradition. But when you take a lifelong baseball man like Sam Nader in Oneonta and you cut his team out because they don't fit our vision of a profitable new league with better connections to major league teams. Uh, when you take a traditional baseball city and you knock it out because they didn't have enough friends to survive contraction. When you try to make new rivalries based not on geography or even region or anything reasonable, but just because I tell you this is a rivalry now, that's not something that's going to keep the old fans. And is it something that's going to bring in the new fans? Baseball is the only game without a clock, they have always said. Except now we're going to make baseball the game that has a clock. 
there's the big argument about whether baseball represents the agrarian bucolic past as opposed to the rigid and stratified, you know, football clock or basketball clock that we play in. Well, we're we're trying to get the best of both worlds, but by doing so, I think the people who control baseball have lost sight of what it is that makes it so unique even at the moment. So yeah, it sounds dismal and it sounds like a downer sort of the way I'm looking at where we've gone and what we seem to be headed for. But when you write a book about the dissolution of the longest existing minor league in America, uh, it is possible that that's the, the only conclusion you can come to. The New York Penn League was a beautiful thing. And some people, the local people, really appreciated it while they had it, but maybe not enough of them did. And maybe that couldn't make a dent at the level of profitability and success that we judge things by now. Is a, a player not a great player if he never wins the World Series? Is Ted Williams not a great baseball player, one of the greatest of all time? Is Dan Marino not one of the greatest football players of all time? We are a results-oriented society in sports now, uh, and very much that is going to impact where baseball is going, I think. All right, our thanks to Michael Fun interesting, intriguing, and still full of curiosity in my mind. Uh, this uh, confluence of these two teams in the New York City area and this New York Penn League, sadly, no longer with us. And uh, in the um, estimation of Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball is uh, what it is today. Uh, we can debate whether it's a good thing or not. Uh, and uh, Lord knows it's uh, going to be full of change for Major League Baseball as well because of some of the innovations tested for a number of years in Minor League Baseball. Uh, uh, debate, discuss, uh, future episodes for sure. The book you must get, however, in the interim is called Bush League Big City, the Brooklyn Cyclones, Staten Island Yankees, and the New York Penn League. It is published by our friends at SUNY Press, and uh, we encourage you to uh, pre-order it now. If you're listening to this show uh, before April 1st, I think we're dropping this in the middle of February, uh, it is available for pre-order. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. You can go to sunipress.edu uh, and pre-order it there. Uh, and uh, if you'd like to perhaps give us a few nickels of referral love, why not just go over to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode number 292. And uh, you will find a convenient link to Michael's book, uh, and uh, you will ensure that you're in the driver's seat for when it is indeed released. Maybe it gets released before April 1st. There is a, always always a possibility. Um, in uh, Kindle form, in paperback form, whatever, uh, why not go over there, get your order in now, and, uh, and rest assured, you'll be uh, safe and ready to go and uh, the first on your block for whenever uh, it is released. Um, and we appreciate that uh, method of purchase uh, and pre-order immensely. Uh, we also appreciate your uh, your input in this show. We're trying to evolve it uh, as uh, as time may allow. Lots of uh, ideas and concepts we'd like to sort of embellish and and uh, and bring to the table beyond just this little podcast podcast each week. Uh, and uh, our email is the best way to say hello to us and uh, and discuss. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Follow us on social media, why don't you? 
uh, on Facebook uh, or in Facebook or whatever that is. Uh, we're at Good Seats Still Available. You will find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And you will also find us at Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, and again, the website, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Every episode is posted there. Uh, but of course, why not uh, subscribe or follow or whatever that is that you do to make sure that you get your podcasts uh, properly. Uh, make sure that uh, you get it with us because we're available just about wherever you can find them. We're also on YouTube. We publish the uh, audio on YouTube as well. So if you want to uh, listen to it there or through that means, go ahead, do it that way too. Uh, and every stinking episode we've ever done is on the website. So uh, you'll always have something to check uh, and uh, see if you've uh, just, you know, for any episode you just may have missed. Our thanks, of course, this week to the great Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne, audio excellence as always. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Take care and stay safe, everybody. Bye. Bye.